0: Greetings, and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast, now presented by The Ring and Ring TV. Very happy to be partnering with my old friend Doug Fisher on his podcast now. A very special guest this week, Hall of Fame promoter Russell Pelch from Philadelphia, We celebrate his nearly 50 years in the business. Uh, We discuss his very successful decade in the 1970s in detail and track how the business has changed and evolved in the half century he's been in the business. Uh, Russell talks about his successes and some of his regrets and uh, lessons his 50 years in the business have taught him. Uh, It was a great conversation. Um, I know it's a little long, but it's well, well worth it to listen. Um, Really hope you enjoy I want to welcome to the pod to the uh, Boxing Esquire podcast, uh, a legend of boxing in the state of Pennsylvania and the, the city of Philadelphia, 2004 inductee into the International Boxing Hall of Fame and uh, a member of more boxing and, and sports hall of fames than I can count, uh, one of my favorite promoters in the game, the one and only Russell Peltz. Welcome, Russell, to the podcast. Great to, great to be here, Kurt. Looking forward to this. <laughs> great, great. Well, Russell, uh, I got to say the, the, the real reason I, I got you on here is because I know that in uh, a few short months, in September of uh, 2019, you'll be celebrating 50 years as a boxing promoter, which is uh, an unbelievable concept and, and an accomplishment. But uh, before I get to that, and, and, and I want to get to all of that, uh, um, I know you're busy prepar- preparing for a few shows coming up in Philadelphia that, that you're co-promoting, so I want to talk about those. Um, on uh, March 15th, you're, you're co-promoting with uh, Eddie Hearn. You got a Philly native, uh, Tevin Farmer, defending his IBF crown against uh, unbeaten uh, Joan O'Carroll. A couple good uh, Philly fighters on the undercard as well. You got Gabe Rosato against a uh, real tough kid, that Masiej uh, Suleski. And a uh, really intriguing all-Philly showdown. Um, you got your fighter, a- Avery Sparrow, going up against Hank, tough Hank Lundy. Veteran contender and got a bunch of Olympic medalists on the card: Katie Taylor and Danyer uh, Yelisinov, two two gold medalists and one silver medalist, uh, John Joe Nevin. Uh, should be an excellent card. Uh, what's uh, want to talk about that for a little bit?
1: Tickets are going well. Um, you know, this is Farmer's first title defense in Philly. Um, they had a good time at the uh, press conference a few weeks ago. Him and Carol, who seems to be a pretty good talker, and um, it's going to be interesting. It's a a big card. I mean, Rosado is probably one of the most popular Philly fighters in recent years, and he's taking on Maciek Saluki. It's uh, it's a career-changing fight for Rosado, if he can win it. To me, it'll put him in line for his shot at the middleweight title, and That could even be against Canelo or the winner of Canelo Jacobs. That's how important I think this lucky fight is. And um, it's Rosado's first fight in Philly in seven years. Wow. Which is pretty incredible. Um, But he's my kind of fighter, and so is uh, the Sparrow-Lundy showdown. Um, Maybe it's a changing of the guard. Maybe Sparrow's biting off more than he can chew because... He is a junior lightweight at best, but they're fighting at 135. Uh, whether or not Lundy is on the wrong side of the hill, we're going to find out. Um, tickets are, as I said, tickets are moving well, and we've still got we've got time. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to working with Eddie Hearn. I worked with his father Barry back in 1992 when my fighter Tony Thornton, the Punching Post man, challenged Chris Eubank for the super middleweight title in Glasgow. So, you know, they say you've been around a long time. You're promoting the sons of fighters you once promoted, but now I'm working with the son of a promoter. So <laughs> that means I've been around <laughs> I've been around a while. I don't know if too many other people could say that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well a few few weeks after that you've got your old friend uh, Bob Arum, coming into Philly and with his uh, light heavyweight champ, Alexander Vosdick. uh taking on uh, the uh, interesting, uh, you know, doo-doo and goombu uh, from from France. Um,
1: (laughs) All right, we're laughing. You're much better with these these pronunciations than I am, (laughs) Kurt. Well, there's a a little bit
0: of Philly flavor on that card as well. I see uh, Ray Robinson uh, is going to take on uh, Mean Machine uh, Kavalowskis, the the top uh, welterweight contender that Bob has. Um, and there's also uh, kid uh, Sonny Canto, local local heavyweight, who just uh, debuted on uh, Michelle Rosado's uh, Raging Bay Promotions card, the 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 Philly special card uh, a week ago. So um, so there's definitely some things going on in, uh, on in Philly. Um, maybe talk a little bit too about uh, about the Philly special card. I know you helped uh, your, your protege uh, Michelle Rosado out with that card. Uh, looked like a fun card until until the main event when uh, Christian Cardo got stopped. Uh, how's he doing?
1: He's fine. He uh, <clears throat> you know he went to the hospital that night. He was out cold for like close to a minute. Mm. He uh, was just charged at quarter one in the morning. He got a clear calf scan. He's got a ninety day suspension, which I mean you know really it should be longer, and I'm sure it will be longer. Uh, you know when they decide is when he wants to fight again. He has to get a neuro, and I suggested to the uh, family that he get an MRI, MRA, just to be sure. But, you know, those things happen, and uh, that's what, as Larry Merchant said, makes boxing the theater of the unexpected. Um, there's nobody <laughs> prior to the fight on the face of the earth that thought that Christian Cardo was going to lose that fight. And, of course, now that the fight's over... All the Monday morning experts are coming out saying I, I, you overmatched them, but that's part of the business, and I have to live with it.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, listen, it wouldn't be a Philly show without a without an upset of of, of somebody, right? Or a, or a Russell Pelt show. <laughs> that's some upset.
1: <laughs> Can't help myself. There you go. <laughs> the largest crowd in the history of the uh, 2300 Arena it was certainly the largest gross gate. I wouldn't be surprised if the gate approached $100,000 for a small club show. which is pretty incredible the job that Michelle Rosado did. And, uh, and Sonny Conto's turned pro, and he's coming back um, on the March 30th show. I mean, he's got an Italian heavyweight from South Philadelphia, so I don't think he gets more attractive than that, and one that can fight a little bit, and one that would probably like to fight on every show. So there's a lot of a lot happening. Actually, we have a fight this Friday, uh, March 1st, at the Parks Casino in Ben Salem, PA, with the with the veteran cruiserweight Garrett Wilson in the main event. So, and then, and then there's a show the same night at the 2300 Arena. So, a lot's happening in Philly right now, and uh, we've got a lot of good fighters. The only thing is, you really don't know how good they are until they start fighting each other or fighting better opposition. So. You know, the first step toward that will probably be the Lundy fight with Sparrow.
0: Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, you've always preached that Philly fighters have to fight Philly fighters. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely get into some of the, the classic ones that, that you promoted. But, yeah, let's let's get into your background. So, um, you know, in case anyone didn't know, uh, you, you grew up in, in Philadelphia and uh, you went to uh, Lower Marion High School um i
1: kobe bryant went to my high school i didn't go to his
0: (laughs) i was gonna say i'm gonna venture to say you're maybe the third most famous graduate from uh lower marion uh with kobe and maybe secretary of state alexander haig kind of uh edging you out (laughs) (laughs) maybe (laughs) (laughs) but uh Philly born and bred you 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 also went to to undergraduate in uh, in, in Philadelphia at the great temple University and um, majored in journalism now uh, you you uh, you graduated and, and for a time you you wrote for the evening bulletin is that right
1: I started working there full-time between my junior and senior year yeah I worked on the sports desk. And I worked from the mid the lobster shift midnight to eight, and then when school started as a senior, I went to school from nine to one then I went home and went to sleep Wow and then I went to work again and I loved it it was uh, uh it was the greatest um to get a job like that between your junior and senior year at a major and the bulletin was the oldest continuous afternoon paper in the country at a time when newspapers we still viable. And if I had gotten the job to be the boxing writer, which is what I wanted, I probably would have, would never have left. But, uh, the man who was the boxing writer at the time, Jack Freed, uh, got an extension on his mandatory retirement when he was 65. And I said to myself, what am I going to do? Wait around for him to die. <laughs> so, um, you know, when you're working the night shift uh, and, and, Deadline is 6 a.m. and you go in at midnight. You still have a lot of free time between editing stories and doing layout, and makeup, and and I'd go into what they called the morgue, which is the Bulletin Library, where they had every, store every single story, every single photo that ever appeared in the history of the Bulletin. So I would I would go in there and look up the old boxing stories, mo- mainly the ones from the Blue Horizon and see what night of the week, who was the... I would make this list, like from 1961 to 64, when the Blue Horizon first hosted boxing. And so I'd make this list of the dates, the nights of the week, who fought, what was the gross, what was the net. And uh, I just studied and studied, because you've got to know the history of this business, in my opinion, in order to really do it right. And, uh, you know, I lived at home... This temple was basically a commuter school, and I had also gotten paid because I was a sports editor, the city editor, the makeup editor at different times at the Temple News, which was a daily newspaper, and you got paid as an editor there. So when I graduated from Temple in '68, I had $5,000 in the bank, and that was a lot of money back then. Nice, yeah, absolutely. And it it was enough to rent the Blue Horizons. Um, and I'd been to the Blue Horizon twice in high school and, um, it was the perfect place to start. And I'd gotten friendly with the people who managed Benny Briscoe because I had written some fight stories and some amateur fight stories. And he was in my first main event and, uh, we went from there. I was 22 years old.
0: That is, I mean, that, that is amazing that, that you know, tw- 20, you were called the boy promoter, I believe. And your first show was on September 30, 1969 at the Blue Horizon. And uh, I did a little digging myself. I wanted to read you something from uh, the September 24, 1969 edition of Malcolm Flash uh, Gordon's New York Boxing <laughs> World. Uh, so the headline is Pelts Revives Blue Horizon. On September 30th, an old stomping ground familiar to boxing fans in Philadelphia returns to action after a long, long rest. The Blue Horizon, one of the city's great arenas, will present a solid main event featuring Phillies, number 6-ranking 160-pounder Benny Briscoe, and his one-time conqueror, Tito Marshall. The 10-rounder is sure to create new interest in small club bouts, and the man who can be thanked for reviving a much-needed part of the fight game is Mr. J. Russell Peltz. Peltz! A 22-year-old staff writer for the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, sports department of course, is risking his time, effort, sweat, and most dear money to make Philly a three-promoter town. Veteran Herman Taylor and Lou Lucchesi are the only other men who run shows in the city of brotherly love, but their shows are usually held at the Spectrum, 15,000 seats, or the Arena, 8,000 seats, and both men have shut down for the summer months, leaving a big gap for the many young and old boxers, it's a pity as so much talent is wasted in one of the all-time great fistic spawning grounds in boxing history. The first show will have a 10-rounder, two sixes and two fours, with tickets that are very reasonably priced at $5 and $3. <laughs> so your card, your card had, I mean, listen, your card was loaded. You had Bad Benny Briscoe, you know, top 10 fighter. Um, and also you had... a. Uh, a man who was uh, uh, the 1968 uh, U.S. Olympic Trials finalist and a man who would eventually hand uh, Marvin Hagler's first professional loss, Bobby Boogaloo Watts on the card, and and the debut of another really good uh, Philly amateur and a guy who would be a really exciting pro, uh, Eugene Cyclone Hart. So uh, talk about that card a little bit.
1: Well, um, I was lucky because... um, as I said, I, I was friendly with the Briscoe people, Penny Schaefer, Pat Duffy, and Jimmy Islin, whose father owned the New York Jets for a while. And uh, I don't know how I came to Tito Marshall, how I got lucky. Naturally, he wasn't the same fighter he had been four years earlier when he beat Briscoe in Philly. But, I mean, how could you, how could you do better with, than with Briscoe fighting someone who would beaten him? Right. And in those days, people weren't so statistics-oriented. They didn't know or care that Tito Marshall had lost I don't know how many in a row. They just cared that he'd beaten Briscoe and he'd lost a close decision at the same time to Kitten Hayward uh, four years earlier. So, and that fight alone, that fight sold the show because
2: you
1: know, I didn't know about ticket sellers giving kids tickets to sell like Sam Solomon, who managed Cyclone Heart and would later make a name for himself training uh, Leon Spinks. He said, give me some tickets to sell, but give me Toppy, who, who owned the Blue Horizons, and he's gonna sell out, you know. It's not even a question there. And I had gotten friendly in college with Tom Pushman, who had come to the Philadelphia Daily News from Denver to cover boxing, among other things. I had actually met him when I was a junior in Oklahoma City, I was out there covering Temple, the annual All college classic, which they played every Christmas in Oklahoma City. He was coming east from Denver, and so we met. We'd sit together and have dinner with the Temple team. So when he heard that I was... Russell, your, your
0: mic's your mic's cutting out a little bit. Can you hear me now? Yeah, perfect, perfect.
1: Okay, so... When he heard I was promoting fights, he uh, he helped me immeasurably. Because, and he also knew that the writers at the other papers in town took money from promoters, which, of course, boxing writers have done since the beginning of time, did since the beginning of time, even some of our heroes like Damon Runyon. Right. So, um, and he told me, that he would help me. But if he ever found out that I was giving the other guys money, that would be the end of it. Now, you know, as, I, as you know, I was a journalism graduate, so there was no way in the world I was going to pay reporters to write stories because, it, it, you know, that was foreign to me. that even to think like that because, and, and without Cushman's help, I don't know if I would have made it, but he knew that I was a straight guy so you know, I was named the boy promoter, the boy wonder, whatever it was, and uh, and I dressed you know with bell bottoms and you know I don't think I had a, a haircut in years <laughs> and I had like a Fu Manchu mustache and <laughs> and you know I mean it was like you didn't, you didn't first of all you didn't see 22 year old people in boxing anyway and certainly none that looked like I did in those <laughs> days. The promoters were all the guys who. Talked out of their the side of their mouth with a cigar the other side, and you know the fedora pulled over their their uh, forehead. <laughs> so the, I got as much publicity I guess before the first fight as the fighters did, <laughs> and uh, we sold out. It was the only time in my life I ever turned anybody away. I can't believe it. Mm. You know, I mean we've had bigger crowds since then. We had sixteen hundred six people in a place that seats. 1346. And while we've had bigger crowds, it was my first night and we had to turn some people around and I hardly even got to see any of the show. And, um, and I regret not filming every single fight of every single show mm. I ever had. I didn't realize that until the mid eighties. I mean, we had films sporadically, certainly of the spectrum years, but a lot of the early blue horizon years, we're not filmed. I do have a couple of cyclone heart in 1970. So uh, anyway, it was a, it was a financial success. And, uh, we did, I did 15 shows in seven and a half months, which, you know, you can't do today with all the medical restrictions. I mean, you can, but not only the medical restrictions, the, the lack of talent and the lack of fighters who, who are willing to fight real fights. Um, There was no internet. There was no box wreck. There was no YouTube. You go into the gym and say, you know, you can fight this guy. And they said, yes, because guys just wanted to fight. Mm. And that's what it was like.
0: Yeah, it's interesting too. You know, you you say there was you know just to put things you know in, in, in perspective back then. Yeah, you know, with no with no internet. I mean, you're out there putting up posters. You're you're selling tickets out of your car. You know, you're you're relying on the newspapers and the radio and, and and guys like Flash Gordon to kind of spread the word and like you said, go going to the gyms. You know, most importantly, getting the the fighters and and their people excited and buying tickets. So um, it's interesting. The the one thing too, I, I just I was listening to a, a recent interview with Bob Arum and he was talking about how um, in the early 60s, you know, Senator uh, Kefauver had the, had the hearings investigating uh, organized crime in boxing and that, uh, that some of the networks dropped out of boxing at that point in time. And according to Bob, um, they didn't get back into boxing until he did a couple of shows in Europe for Wide World of Sports, uh, a couple of Ali shows. Um, And that would have been, like, mid-'66. So, like, around the time you started promoting, was was ABC really the only network that was televising uh, boxing on a regular basis on on regular TV?
1: I don't think think anybody was televising boxing. The Mm. the Friday and then the Saturday night fights went off the air in 1964. And, yeah, there would be sporadic Ali fights. Um, And then I remember... Sometime, let's see, Monzone won the title in like 70. I think Monzone won the title in 70, the middleweight title. And then you would see Monzone defending the title mostly from Europe in the early 70s. Um, oh, and Benvenuti, there would be sporadic. Yeah, Benvenuti and Louis Rodriguez, I remember seeing that on TV around 70 or 69. There would be sporadic Saturday afternoon shows, but. But nothing steady other, you know, the Ali fights, of course, whenever he fought overseas or because before he was banned from boxing, his fights would be on closed circuit television. Right. Uh, Like the Ernie Terrell fight, the Cleveland Williams fight. I think Zora Foley was on live TV, which was his last fight, I believe, before he was stripped of his license. Right right and then, then of course you had the wba heavyweight tournament in 67 and 68 but there was no there was no steady it would pop up on wide world of sports yeah and maybe maybe later cbs sports spectacular but wide world of sports was keeping it going
0: so also at when when you entered the sport in 69 the 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 governing bodies i mean obviously the the bc and the ba were around but you also had, I mean, the New York State Athletic Commission, right? I mean they, they had they recognized Joe Frazier as a champion. So it was kind of harem scare, but for the most part, um there was agreement on who the world champion was though, right? I mean both the, the B C and the BA at that point in time were, were generally recognizing the same fighters as as world champion um, in divisions. Is that is that about right?
1: I can't um the B C was the first one to come along. Um, I just remember Teddy Brenner making a statement. How can you strip Monzón of the title for not going to Columbia to fight Valdez? But that was already in the early seventies. I think was the WBA around then, or was it still the NBA? I can't even remember. But well, the BA, were, they, the uh, BA
0: had the the heavyweight tournament, so yeah, it had to be the uh, oh, that's right, that's yeah. right. They had the heavyweight tournament. So, but
1: it, but. But they eventually fought. In other words, it wasn't like today where nobody fights. Jimmy Ellis won the tournament and eventually fought Frazier, and they unified the title. I mean, it wasn't rampant idiocy like it is today. Everybody knew who the eight or nine or ten champs were, and boxing was still a major sport.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, because I mean, I'm assuming, you know, the, the sanctioning bodies didn't have the, the, the power that they were that they kind of eventually got. So how, you know, as you entered the sport, what was your thing? How would you maneuver fighters to world title shots? Like one of the things I found interesting kind of poking around because uh, I have a pretty good collection of Flash Gordon's uh, publications is, One thing I didn't know was that you had like when when you first started promoting, Benny Briscoe was kind of thinking of uh, campaigning at uh, at 154 pounds at junior middleweight and that he was rated by the WBA as like the number one contender for, for Freddie Little. But he never got that shot. I mean, did the sanctioning bodies enforce mandatories? Was there even talk about mandatories at that point in time?
1: Not that I remember and, and I think everybody knew that Freddie Little wasn't gonna fight Briscoe, but Briscoe was having trouble making weight at fifty four. And when he lost to Joe Shaw in the fall of nineteen seventy, uh that ended that ended you know, of course Little came out after that and said the guy blew a title shot by losing to Joe Shaw, but <laughs> Little never had any intention of fighting Briscoe. And then after that, um Briscoe uh well, when he beat Shaw in the rematch, then he left his management, and um, we took over his career. Um, what had happened was, but you know I'm getting off track so um you, boxing was big you't have, people have to remember how box, big boxing was then, and when we took over Briscoe's career, he scored eleven straight knockouts
2: hmm.
1: <clears throat> and People knew who that, and he just rose in the rankings. And, and, um, I remember the night he got off the floor twice in the first round to beat Rafael Gutierrez, Bill Brennan, who later got in trouble. But at the time he was the head of the WBA, he was there and he made Briscoe the number one contender. He said he'd never seen anything like that in his life. And, uh, he got off the floor twice in the first round and knocked the guy out in the second round. Especially for a guy like Briscoe, who was never on the floor. Right. So, um, and, you know, it, it just, that's what, you know, you had to fight your way up the ladder to get a title shot. Today, with four or five or six or however many world champions there are in each of 2,000 divisions, you just sit there and wait for your shot. So once you get, once you maneuver yourself into the top 10, that's the end of your competitive fighting. Right. Because you just sit there and you move up by attrition. In those days, you had the fight number seven. You had the fight number five. You had the fight number three. And, and guys wanted to do that. And people came out and paid good money to see those fights. And that's how um, I wouldn't know how to maneuver in those days. You just you figured that things were going to be right. And <laughs> Monzone was the kind of guy that would, Ben Venuti, forget it, because Briscoe had hurt, beat him up in training camp. We knew that wasn't going to happen. So when Ben lost the title to Monzone, that was the greatest thing that ever happened to us because Monzone was a fighting champion and he would fight anybody. He didn't care. The only thing with Briscoe is he would only fight Briscoe in Argentina, which was okay. I mean, it was a wonderful experience to fight in front of 25,000 people in Luna Park against a real Hall of Famer for the... World middleweight title. I mean, you know, not too many people get to experience something like that, and to have the guy out, right? Had him out, right? And couldn't finish him. So, you know, no harm in that,
0: right? Well,
1: you know, you've been
0: in the business for so long, Russell, and you know, I'd I'd love to go through like every single year of your career and talk about fights, because but we'd be here for like a week. I mean, but. Um, if you don't mind it, there, there's one particular decade, uh, that, I, that I really wanted to kind of go through year by year. Cause it was just, just so many amazing things happened for you. That was the 1970s. Um, so 69, you know, you did a bunch of shows and, it, you know, even though you started September 30th, I think you ended up squeezing in like five shows and you had guys like Leotis Martin and Jimmy Young and, and Willie the Worm Monroe, as well as Briscoe on those cards. But 1970 at least though this is according to box rec it may not be completely accurate but you promoted 17 shows in 1970 all but one were at the blue horizon you had one at the philadelphia arena uh, with uh, briscoe and 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 harold richardson but um you had uh georgie benton and sammy goss and 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 benny briscoe and and uh, the, the one guy I'd really like to talk about in 1970 because, you know, those, the shows at the Blue are small, right? But, you, but you're building guys. And, you know, I think people forget Cyclone Hart started off his career with, like, n- what, 19 straight KOs? Uh, you know, talk about building, building his career early on.
1: Well, he fought on – in those days, you promoted – you didn't promote in the summer uh, because you needed a big, expensive, air-conditioned building, And, uh, which I didn't have the building or the money to do it. So we ran from September 30th to May 18th, 15 shows, Cyclone Heart fought on 10 of them Hmm. and scored 10 knockouts. And he was just, he was Cyclone Hart to this day remains. In my opinion, the, the best one punch left hooker I ever saw in person. Hmm. I mean, it was just a devastating punch and, um, I like his eighth, or, his seventh, or eighth fight. He was headlining. He knocked out Vernon Mason, who was a little bit smaller. I, I admit it, but he was a veteran fighter out of Baltimore. Maybe he had, I don't know, 15 or 20 fights at the time when Hart knocked them out. Maybe a split second after the bell, but it was just guys were coming to fight, and it didn't matter what their records were. He was just knocking them out, and that's what people listen. I love Prinell Whitaker and I could enjoy watching Pernell Whitaker fight, but I don't want to see a show of seven Pernell Whitaker fights (laughs) and nobody else does. People (laughs) want to see people getting clocked. That's what it's all about. And it's, you know, and Cyclone heart was clocking people. And of course, so was Willie the worm Monroe. They were like on a, they were like on a collision course to see who could score the most knockouts in a row. And there was one or two times he would fight for someone else but through the, his fight with Kitten when he fought Kitten Hayward in um in uh, that was 71
0: 71 right
1: Yeah we sold out the arena and um you know I don't think Kitten Hayward took him too seriously but it was a devastating just devastating and 62nd knockout and um and then I lost Cyclone Heart. I didn't, you know, I thought, I thought people's word was good. You know, you shake a guy's hand. I, I, and I still feel that way. Right. But Herman Taylor, who, who I consider to be the greatest promoter who ever lived, hmm. um, because he did it at a time when you had to sell tickets, not when you had a relationship with a TV executive that would foot the bill. And heard that I think there's still more, certainly more undisputed champs in Canistota who fought for Herman Taylor than who fought for any other promoter. I don't even think it's close. I mean, he did Dempsey Tunney, he did Marciano Walcott, he did Joe Louis Derazio, Ike Williams against uh, Bob Montgomery. He had Benny Leonard loot. I mean, he was the man. So anyway, he came along and he put his arm around Sam Solomon and, you know, they went back, and all of a sudden, I had to start fighting tooth and nail to get Cyclone Heart back. Mm-hmm. So, I got an early lesson <laughs> in what the business was like. <laughs> and uh, But, uh, you know, you persevered, because it was a 24-7 job, and I was a kid, and I loved it, and I had the energy, and... Uh, And I still had Briscoe. So let let me tell you how I made it was Briscoe had fought for me in in the first fight that we talked about, Tito Marshall, which was September of 69. So what happened, I learned later, when he got ready for the rematch with Joe Shaw, one of his friends, you know, Willie, uh, Bowie Fisher, who trained Hopkins. He had a brother named Willie Fisher, who was like Briscoe's best friend. He didn't like the way Briscoe was fighting at the time. He was up with Joe Fariello in the uh, Catskills. And, you know, Fariello not around today to tell his side of the story. But Willie Fisher went over to Briscoe's house one day and he called Fariello on the phone and he had Benny pick up the other phone. This was before Benny was getting ready to go to camp for the second Joe Shaw fight. And Willie Fisher was asking Fariello. You know, what are you, do? what are you going to do different this time? And Fariello said, and now remember, Briscoe's listening in on the other line. Fariello doesn't know this. And Fariello says, there's nothing you can really teach Benny. You just wind him up and send him out there. Okay, so mm. that was the end of Fariello as the trainer. <laughs> so, Briscoe told Jimmy Island that he wanted to stay in Philadelphia and go back to his old trainer Quenzel McCall. And Jimmy said, no, you either, either Fariello trains you or you're not fighting Shaw again. So Briscoe went to the state athletic commission because he'd already signed for the fight. And he said, can they stop me from fighting if I want to switch trainers? And they said, no, they can't stop you. So Briscoe went and fought Joe Shaw with Quenzel McCall in the corner and he stopped them. So that was like in March of 70. So Sometime that summer, like in June of 70, this was the end of my first year, um, I was standing outside a ticket agency in in Center City, and a guy named Jack Puggy, there's a name for a fight guy, Jack Puggy, (laughs) he'd been around since the 20s, managing fighters, and he was Herman Taylor's matchmaker. And he see, and I, I saw him outside Sherry's ticket office downtown. He said, you know what? I just got an offer to buy Benny Briscoe's contract. He said, but what do I need a fighter for at my age? I guess Buggy was in his late 60s. I don't know. When I look back on it, I think maybe he was 90, but he was probably only in his 60s. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need any fighters at this stage of my life. So I said, check. I didn't act, I said, what, how much, the, he said, they want me to pay him 2500 for Briscoe's contract. Now, remember, this is 1970. Okay. Right, right. So I just, I listened to him, and I said, okay, Jack, I got to take off. So I drove to my house, to my apartment, and I called my brother-in-law, who was an accountant, and I said, his name was Arnold Weiss, uh, and I said, Arnold, Briscoe's contract is for sale for 2500 I said, why don't you buy his contract and we'll have control because Cyclone Hart, Boogaloo Watts, and Willie the Worm are all coming up and one day they're all going to have to fight Briscoe and whoever controls Briscoe is going to control all those big fights. Mm. So that's how we made the deal. I went to New York and met Islin, the first time I was ever in a Palm restaurant in my life. I'll never <laughs> forget it. He ordered a string bean and onion salad, which normally I would never order. But I was a kid, so I, I got it anyway. I got the same thing. He said there was an extra 800 that Briscoe had owed them, which I knew ahead of time. So I gave him the check for 3300 He ran into the kitchen. There were no cell phones in those days. And called Fariola. They were so happy. Never even thinking me that Briscoe would turn into the attraction that he turned out to be. We were, I was doing it to control those big fights. So, um, and then Briscoe scored 11 knockouts in a row and he was packing people in. And uh, that really gave me uh, control of the city because, and then there was a a race for a while to see who would get the shot at Monzone first. Art, Taylor was pushing Hart because Taylor had a connection with Teddy Brenner in the garden. And of course, Teddy was Teddy. He had connections all over the world. I was friendly with Dewey for Jeddah who was the main international booking agent in those days and who had ties to Monzone. And uh, then that, that fall of 71, Hart fought Denny Moyer at the Spectrum and fell out of the ring and banged his head um, and was suspended for a while, came back and got stopped by Nate Collins, leaving Briscoe all alone at the top, although we did have that, that stumble against Louis Vinales and Scranton. But um you know that's how that's how um, I mean how old was I in seventy two? I was twenty five. So, you know, when you look back on it, Kurt, you think, Jesus, I was twenty five dealing with these people. You know, the, you know, I remember meeting Tito Lectori in, in Philly. He came to he came to see Cyclone Heart fight Matt Donovan in February of seventy two and he looked at the crowd, which was, you know, at least 50% black in the arena. I think Richie Cates fought Roger Rouse on the card. And he said, I will never let Monzone fight here ever. <laughs> oh, man. So, um, well, that's crazy. So, but, uh, but those were great years, just great years being, being involved with Benny and George Benton. I mean, God, I used to watch these kids, these guys fight when I was in high school. Right and now they were fighting for, him, and now they were fighting for me. We had so much talent around them. Oh, abs- and, and absolutely. Was, and and there was no, I don't want to fight him. I don't. Want, I never recall guys saying, I don't want to fight this guy. <laughs> I don't want to fight that
0: guy. Well, let me let me uh, let me ask you about a few fights in particular. Um, uh, going, you know, back to, to seventy one. I was just reading in, in flashes a uh, thing about um, Benny Briscoe versus Tom the Bomb Bethia. This is a... It's a fight I never I'd never heard of, but supposedly this was like an unbelievable war. Uh, what what do you remember from uh the Briscoe bathea fight?
1: First of all, Flash Gordon was the best. He <laughs> sold programs at all my early fights. I have every single one of them. I mean, in addition to his weekly publication, he right. would always come to Philly and sell programs. He was and they're they're collector's items, but what happened was Uh, Of course, you know, Bethia had knocked out Nito Benvenuti in a non-title fight. Right. And then he lost to Benvenuti in Yugoslavia for the title. And then he had lost to Ralph Paladin in Scranton. But it didn't matter. He was still Tom the Bomb Bethia. That's why people weren't into the statistics. They they knew it was a fight, and they knew style-wise it was a fight. So I I made the deal with Gil Clancy. I was going to give CEO $3,000 for the fight, which was a good payday in 70, what was that? 71? 71, March of 71. March seventy. March 22nd, okay. Very good, So, yeah. Clancy went out of town. And, you know, if Gil Clancy told you the fight was in, the fight was in. You didn't, we didn't have fax machines. You would mail him a contract, and, you know. So, he goes out of town. And I get a call one day from Flash Gordon from Clancy's gym. He says, uh, I think you got a problem, Russell. Uh, Tom Bathea's is here, and uh, he doesn't want to fight Briscoe for $3,000. So I said, put him on the phone. So he puts Bathea on the phone, and Bathea says, I'm not fighting him for 3000 I said, what do you want? He said, I want $4,000. Uh, you know, I mean, see, I, I wanted to just make good fights, so sometimes... I didn't think, you know, I mean, I overpaid for a lot of fights in my day, even though you don't think $4,000 is a lot of money today, but it was a lot of, I said, okay, you got 4000 Well, Clancy comes back into town and he goes crazy. He called me on the phone. He said, don't you, and I'll tell you this, Gil Clancy was the first big time manager from out of town who treated me with respect. I would, whenever I'd go up to New York to the fights, I'd go to his the Telstar gym on 28th Street and sit there and hang out with him. And he treated me, even though I was in the business a year maybe, he treated me like I was a veteran promoter. And Angelo Dundee was the same way. And I ne- but I never forgot Clancy. He was the first one. He said, listen, I made a deal with you for $3,000. When I make a deal, I sit the fighter down in my office, I tell him what we're doing, and that's it. You had no right to give Batia the extra money. It makes me look bad. And he's right when you think about it. What does Batia need Clancy for if he can if he can negotiate his own fight? He okay. said, "Normally I wouldn't take my cut out of the extra thousand, but I'm to help you, but I'm going to take my cut just to teach you a lesson." Anyway, so Batia came to Philly and there's no film of the fight. Ah, because Flash Gordon had a friend named Red Fox. Of course, not the comedian uh, who died young of cancer, but he would come to the fights and film them on his eight millimeter camera. And he would make me copies with, you know, and he would put in um, message boards, Benny Briscoe versus whoever, with the date and the weights. But he didn't bring his camera that night. Okay, Hmm. so there's no film of the fight. All I remember is that it was toe to toe. They finally stopped it in the sixth round in Bethia's corner. He couldn't see anymore, and I remember being in the ticket office that night. And they, the Harold Weston Senior, I'm not sure. I guess with they had to lead Bethia in, but he was like blind hmm. because both eyes were completely shut. They, he had the Carmen Basilio eyes from the Robinson fight. Wow, both eyes and. Uh, and he stood toe to toe with Briscoe. And it's just a shame there's no film of it. And um, I thought I could save money at the arena that night by cutting down out the balcony and just selling like the 5,500 seats downstairs. But there was such a rush to get tickets that we had to open the balcony at the last minute and sold like those tickets you get at raffles. <laughs> so uh, to get, I don't know how much money these ticket takers <laughs> ripped me off for that night but I'm sure they made more money than I did you know Wow. So, um, that was my first really big successful show at the arena I mean I had done Briscoe and Harold Richardson as you mentioned a few months earlier but this was my really first major fight hmm. at the arena I think we did about 5,000 people something like that that's awesome. Hart was on the show. Augie Pantelis was on the show. Right, right. So then, like
0: in May, you did the the Hart Hayward fight, which would, which was a, a, a coming out party for Hart, because Hayward, being the the great veteran contender that he was, uh, and Briscoe fought in the undercard of that, right? Um,
1: yeah, well, that was a problem too because Briscoe didn't want to fight underneath Hart. Right. And Briscoe wasn't that kind of guy. I mean, he wasn't a, an ego guy. But I think his friends got in his um, ear.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, and so I had to go over. So I picked them up one day, and we went over to Quenzel McCall's house. And they were right. I mean, they weren't wrong. So I said, "Listen, do me a Hayward wouldn't fight Briscoe at that point again." I said, "Do me a just do it for me as a favor. That's all." And Quenzel said, "Okay." You're asking us to do you a favor. We'll do you the favor. But, you know, it's not going to happen again. So he fought Carlos Marks. It was one of his best fights. He got dropped for the first time in his life. And that uh, that show, I've got all three main events. Pancelis, Durango Kid, Brisco, Carlos Marks, and Hart Hayward on. Well, now I have them on DVD, yeah. Awesome. So that's sold out. That's We did $43,000, and mm. I'll tell you, Kurt, I made twenty five hundred dollars. I overpaid. <laughs> uh, I remember veteran fight manager Joe Granby coming to me that night. Said you got a big crowd here. I said yeah. He said you didn't make any money. I said how do you know? He said you overpaid. <laughs> I said yeah, you're right, Joe. I mean, you know because to do forty three thousand and only make twenty five hundred, you know. But I wanted to make the fight. I just wanted to make it, and I knew I was overpaying. Hayward got twenty five percent of the gate. Art got twenty percent. And I still had to pay Briscoe and Marks and Augie Pantelis and Durango Kid, but you know, it was still one of the big nights of my of my boxing career, and I, I don't have any regrets. Right,
0: right. That's awesome.
1: So moving forward, seventy two, you did eleven
0: shows, all of them at the Philly Arena. I guess uh Philly Arena it held more how much more did it hold than uh than the blue? blue horizon.
1: Well, the blue held thirteen forty six. The arena held about seven thousand.
0: Okay, so you moved on up, and obviously the highlight of seventy two was the November fight in in Argentina. Um, so you were there, obviously, for it. And and uh, you know, I mean, what what was the feeling when that big right hand landed in the ninth round? Uh, Monzón, I mean, literally for like uh, two three seconds, he looks like completely out on his feet. <laughs> I just I was watching. I was in
1: that- Oh uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was, uh, I was gonna
0: say it's up on YouTube, um, and, and I, I got a chance to watch it the other day. And uh, I always had, had assumed that Benny hit him with a left hook, but no, it was, it was like a lead right hand, and uh, and and Monzone uh, just like hands down, you know, eyes blank. But man, he recovered so quickly. And uh,
1: well, I we were my father and I were you know I was I want to tell you in those days we got three airfares to go to Argentina. Um, Benny, milk, Bailey, the cut man, and Quenzel McCall. The rest of us paid. I paid my way. Arnold Weiss paid my way. My dad came with us and my dad filmed the fight on the old eight millimeter cameras where after each round, you had to take this, the, uh, the cassette out and put a new one in (laughs) and we sat. Yeah. So I have that version of the fight and I have about three or four other versions, some black and white, some color, some with the, some with the announcers some without, but, um, Monzone got hit in our corner. And if you, if you look at the version you're looking at, he sort of like falls into the ropes in the corner and the look on his face. When I saw Monzone, he looked like he was going to throw up. That's how sick his face was. And if you look back to your version, Benny like slightly hesitates, just slightly hesitates before he goes after him. And then Monzone holds, holds on, and at one point, you see Monzone looking up at the clock. Right. Because I have a still picture of Monzone holding Benny and looking up at the clock. So, meanwhile, one judge didn't give Benny a single round in the fight. Right. One guy had it 150 to 139. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, what were we going to do? I, I, I thought it was like 10 to 5. Monzone won 10 rounds and Benny won five. At no point did I ever think Benny was winning the fight, but he made, see that fight to me showed how good Monzone really was because Benny was on his ass every second of every round and he made Monzone really fight. And for Benny, who was in incredible shape, to be able to push Monzone 15 rounds and Monzone still be able to control the fight, even though he got hit plenty, I mean, Benny was popping him with that jab. And, of course, they warned Benny a half a dozen times for body punching, you know, (laughs) not allowed to hit Monzone in the body. But, you know, that to me showed Monzone's greatness in that fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, moving
0: uh, on to 73, you... uh took over as director of boxing at the Spectrum. Um, you did 16 shows in, in 1973. But uh, Tell me about how it came about that you became director of boxing at the Spectrum.
1: Well, there was a lot of press in the paper about the Monzone fight. I offered Monzone 150000 to come to Philly to fight a rematch, of course, which he wasn't going to do. But um, I got a call one day from a guy named Steve Greenberg at the Spectrum I guess, let's see, Monzone was November of 72, and so it had to be right after that fight to come down and talk to him and Louis Scheinfeld, who was the president, about starting Monday night fights at the Spectrum. And I went down there and I met with them. Um, so I was turning 26. And um, I went on salary against the per- plus a percentage of the profits, and I became director of boxing at the Spectrum. And we lost our shirts in 1973. I mean, we were hemorrhaging money. Out of the 16 live shows, we made money on um, three of them. Uh, two, wait, Briscoe, Art Hernandez, Briscoe Douglas. I think those were the only two shows we made money on. Mm. So in the in these, even though we were developing like Tyron Everett guys. But, oh, you got. Um, yeah, I mean,
0: the, the the number of fighters. I mean, you had Sammy Goss, you had Mike Everett, you had Jimmy Young, Richie Cates, um, all Philly fighters that that fought on undercards uh, that year. Um, and Cates even yeah, headline. Oh, and uh, I forgot Mike Rossman and Eddie Mustafa Muhammad too. By the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, but they they were they were undercard fighters. Right, right, right. And uh, you were developing them, yeah. Yeah, but I wasn't making the kind of main events that you needed for a place like the Spectrum. Right. And um, so in December, either late November or December, Alan Flexer, who was the controller vice president of the Spectrum, took me to lunch at what was then called the Blue Line Club, essentially to fire me. Mm. Um, He said, how are you going to turn this around? I said, I can do this. I can get the Philly guys to fight each other and that'll turn the spectrum that'll turn the program around. So he said, Okay, let's, you know, show me. So I went to all the gyms in Philly and I posted um uh notices on all the in all the gyms that there was gonna be a meeting at Joe Frazier's gym sometime in mid December seventy three. And I wanted all the trainers and managers to go to talk about the future of boxing in Philly. So we had this meeting. And I I would say about 50 or 60 people were there. And I told them that the Spectrum had the 76ers. They had the Flyers. They had the concerts. They had the ice capades. They had the circus. I said, the Spectrum doesn't need us unless you guys start fighting each other we're going to be back at the arena, which was like out of a class B, you know, a B movie, filled Noir from the from the 40s, which I'd love to have today, by the way. But right. <laughs> I said, you've got to start fighting each other or it's over. So that night at that meeting, I made two fights for the first show. I made Kitna Hayward against Lil Abner, who was a tough junior middleweight. And I made the, the third match in a trilogy between two local welterweights Alfonso Heyman and William Watson. and we we turned we did about four or five thousand people, and we made, must have made, I don't know, five thousand dollars, whatever it was. Now, and you also have to remember that Yank Durham had died in around September of seventy three after the Fraser Joe Bugner fight in England. And Yank was definitely against Philly versus Philly. But Eddie Futch took over. And he knew from his days at the Olympic in L.A. when Hedgeman Lewis would fight Indian Red Lopez and what they did out there. So he agreed to let Willie the Worm Monroe fight Cyclone Heart on the second show in February of 74. And we did like 10,000 people and we were on our way. And my per- <laughs> since we hemorrhaged money in 73, I got no percentage. But 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, especially 78, I was able, well, they raised my salary, and I also got uh, my percentage of the profits, and in those years, the Spectrum, the Guard, the Olympic, and the Forum in L.A., those were the four major arenas for boxing in the United States, and it and, uh, it was just great, it was just great.
0: Yeah, seventy four. I mean, yeah, you could see it. You mean Hart uh, lost to Willie the Worm in, in in February, and then in July you had uh, Boogaloo Watts take on Hart, and he knocked him out in a round. Um, now you had Emil Griffith and 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 Benny Briscoe. Was that? I mean, I, I have it down here. Was that also in Philly, Emil and, and Benny? Yeah,
1: that was at the Spectrum. Yeah, in uh, October ninth, October eighth, nineteen seventy
0: four. Right, right, and Emil. Uh, Won a close one over Benny, and and you had a uh, Boogaloo fight uh, Willie the Worm uh, in November, and and Watts uh, won that one as well. Um, so heading into seventy five, I guess you had some momentum, and and you had you had uh, more great fights, right? You, I mean, Briscoe was very busy. Uh, well, actually, Briscoe fought uh, earlier in the in seventy four. He fought. Um, abroad, right? He fought Tony Mundine in Paris in what was an eliminator,
1: right? Um, The greatest night of my boxing life. Is that right? Yeah, that's still my favorite time. That was my favorite fight of my career because it was like a world title fight because Mundine was so big. He'd beaten Griffith in Paris. He'd beaten Max Cohen in Paris. Paris and Philly were the middleweight capitals of the world at that time. And we got the offer to fight Mundine. And I mean, everybody was there Reuters, AP, UPI, Reg. I remember it was just, I remember meeting Reg Guttridge, who was like the Howard Cosell of Europe, not in style, but he was the man who broadcast all the big fights from England. And as we were in the hotel getting ready to go to the arena, the night of the fight, he, I recognized him, and I guess he recognized me. And uh, we, we, we introduced ourselves, and he said, he said, I don't get it. He said, Mundine is the toast of Paris. He can call the shot for the Monzone fight. Why in the world would he want to tune up with Briscoe? <laughs> I, I said, I don't. I just gave him a sheepish grin, and we went to the fight. And this was the first time... Briscoe Mundine was the main event, but it was the second fight on the card. They opened up the show with a European title fight, Leonard Tavares and something. And we were the second fight on the card. And this was the first time I really learned about walkout fights and how they, and how they do it. And I became a big proponent of it. But I went up, I had my eight millimeter camera with me, the same one that my dad had used in Argentina, and I went to the top row of the Palais de Sport, which was sold out, and I filmed the fight. I later, years later, Jim Jacobs got me professional copies, and I filmed the fight from up there, and you could see in the fifth round when Benny finally got to him, not only the people jumping up in front of the camera, but the camera shaking because my hands were shaking (laughs) because I was so excited and nervous, and then I ran down to the dressing room, and I had my brother in law take pictures of me kissing Briscoe on his head. And it was just, uh, it was just, it was like winning the world title, mm. that mm. fight. I mean, it was just, a, anytime you win a big fight on the road, it's a big deal. But a fight, that was like, I mean, I've, my fighters have won world titles on the road, but there was nothing like that, especially when you consider, let's see, 1974. So I was 27 years old. It was just, I, looked, I look at my son's years later and I say, wow, how did I do this when I was that age? But we were like, we were the toast to Paris. But then he, we came back and fought Valdez for the title that year. And that was the only time Briscoe ever got stopped, which was a disaster in a fight that he appeared to be turning around. And then the end of the year, he had that lackluster fight with Griffith, which really wasn't that close even though I think one judge might have scored it a draw. And that's when Briscoe wanted to change trainers because he and Quenzel weren't getting along. And then Georgie Benton took over his career, and then he just went on like a, an, Indian, an Indian summer of his career in which he won, didn't lose another fight for three years and got another shot at the title. So um, I'm rambling, but that's uh, the story.
0: No, no, that's great. That's great. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll skip ahead a little bit. But yeah, I mean, 1975, you promoted 19 fights, which is, is crazy. Um, and a lot of great ones with Briscoe. I mean, you know, Vinny Curto, uh, Kitten Hayward, Eddie Gregory, now Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. And uh, well, one I, I definitely want to mention, uh, because uh, I, I just saw that uh, the draw that he fought with Cyclone Heart, that, that Benny Briscoe fought with Cyclone Heart, I saw that it ended up finishing second uh, to the Thrilla in Manila for Fight of the Year. Um, the, the British publication uh, Boxing News deemed it that. So um, yeah, I, I'm assuming that was at the spectrum. So, do you, what are your recollections from that night with uh, Benny and Cyclone?
1: Yeah, we drew well. What, we drew 11,000 people. It, first of all, both guys had been written off in '74. If you look at Hart's record, he had lost. Uh, he'd lost to Monroe, got knocked out by Boogaloo Watts, got knocked out by Eddie Gregory in '74. And Briscoe, after the big Mundine fight, had lost to Valdez and then Griffith. So they were both like yesterday's news. And then Briscoe revived in '75. And at the same time, a new promoter came into town, the Walker Brothers, who were in the music business, and they started using Hart, who went left Customato and went back to Sam Solomon, and he scored a series of knockouts at the arena. And people love punchers, and the matchup of Briscoe and Hart was what people wanted to see, because by the time we got to the end of the middleweight tournament in 74 with Hart... Not Hart with Watson Monroe. We lost money on the show because they did, they didn't have the styles that Briscoe and Hart had, even though they managed to win. So I was trying to make the fight, and Hart was going to take a fight with Willie Warren of Corpus Christi for the Walker brothers in September. And uh, Jim Jacobs was the manager of Hart, and I said, Jimmy, you know what are you doing? I'm not saying you can't beat this guy, but he's made out of iron, Willie Warren, Frankie Warren's older brother. And you got to hit him with a sledgehammer to get him out of there. And Hart had a history of tiring in fights. But but the Walker brothers hadn't sent the contract out yet. So I did something I should never do, and I hate when other people do it. I went directly to Hart. I went to the gym one day. And I got him aside. I said, are you out of your mind? You know how much money you're going to make with Briscoe? Why would you take this fight that could jeopardize the Briscoe fight? So basically, I was going behind the manager's back directly to the fighter. And, uh, but it was so incredible, incredulous that they were going to do this. You know? Mm. So Hart called Jacobs up on the phone and said, I'm not fighting I'm not fighting Willie Warren. I want to just fight Frisco. So Bob Wright, who was covering boxing at the time for the Bulletin, um, wrote a story saying Peltz had to twist arms to make the fight. And and Jacobs was quoted as saying, there was nothing I can do because Hart hadn't signed the contract yet. So I had to do what my fighter wanted to do, and Sam Solomon was quoted as saying, "Of course, George Benton didn't really want the fight either, because he thought Hart was too young for Briscoe and too strong." And Sam Solomon was, and he was quoted as saying that. And Sam Solomon was quoted as saying, "I don't appreciate what Phelps did. You know, in the old days, he would have gotten fitted for a new set of teeth." But <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I, 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 I was at the Spectrum one day. And I went to the box office. This was like, this story came out like two weeks before the fight when Bob Wright was writing how the fight was made. So this woman named Blanche McNamee, who worked in the Spectre box office, she said, Boy, this is supposed to be really good. I said, Why is that? She said, Because your press is bad. <laughs> she said, Whenever you, she said, Whatever press is bad, it means business is good. And I hadn't seen the story at the time. And she showed me the story, so I never forgot that that she said that to me. <laughs> Business must be good because your press is bad. <laughs> and it was a great, it was a great. But you know what? I did, the, I, 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 did the, I, I did the right thing for the in the wrong way. But it was like, it was like one of the greatest fights in the history of Philly. And um, you know, it was a draw, which of course led to the rematch. I mean, Art made. For those days, Hart made fifteen thousand, which I, I, I looked up. Now this is just a ten-round fight. This is no bullshit, phony titles. Hart made fifteen thousand, and Briscoe made twenty, which today is worth about, I think it's worth about eighty-five and a hundred and ten. I don't know who's making that kind of money today for non televised ten-round fights. Oh, absolutely. They bought a rematch. They each took a. Um, they each took a tune up in between and won and fought a rematch in April of 76, for which Hart got 25,000, which is equivalent to about 125 today. And Briscoe got about 140 or 50,000, which is, no, I'm sorry, Briscoe got 30,000, which is worth about 140,000 today. Again, for a 10 round fight. Of course, that was a fight where Briscoe knocked him out in the first round. So. You know, I wasn't too popular with the Walker brothers, but you know, business was
0: business. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made a great fight. I mean, um, you know, go going into seventy six, um a new uh a new fighter kind of appears on the Philly scene from out of town, um by the name of Marvin Hagler to, to try and test himself against the Philly middleweights and uh didn't do so well his first two times out. He uh he got beat by uh well, I should put it in air quotes, that he got beat by uh, Bobby Watts, Boogaloo Watts. Um, uh, do you think that Watts deserved that decision against Hagler?
1: No, he didn't, no. no he, didn't. <laughs> he, uh, listen, he came into town doing poetry. Uh, Hagler did.
0: Oh, is that right?
1: And, uh, yeah, He so, you know, they quoted him in the papers doing poetry, and the next day, after the fight, Dan Hockman opened his story with the following poem. Marvin Hagler, the fighter, the, fight, the fighter from Brockton, came to the spectrum and barely got socked on. Boogaloo Watts, he did car, but guess what happened to Marvelous Marv? I mean, it was, it was an all... Au- Listen, Boogaloo Watts is a great guy, but he's the only person that believes he actually won that fight. Um, <laughs> I remember screaming at one of the judges, you know, how could you do that? And when, on my way back to the dressing room, Alan Flexer, the president, caught up with me. He said, how could they do that? And Alan obviously hadn't seen too many fights in his um And then when Hagler came back in March and fought the guy that Boogaloo Watts had beaten, right, Willie Monroe, we had a snowstorm that day. And um, the camera crew didn't make it. The film crew didn't make it. So even even Marvin admitted in the papers the next day, he couldn't understand how Watts had beat Monroe because he admitted that Monroe really beat him. It was like 7 to 3, even though every round was a war. But uh, it was right was that- Monroe's greatest night.
0: Absolutely, and that might be the only legitimate loss on uh, on Hagler's career, uh, in his career, right? I mean... I you know, agree, I agree. I mean, uh, I the Leonard fight could have went either way, but uh, yeah, Monroe legit beat him. Um, it's funny because...
1: Oh, after, after that fight, let me tell you this story. Sure. Though. After that fight, after the Monroe fight was over, and you might have heard this story, I went back to the dressing room and the Petronelli brothers cornered me. And they said, Russell, you're working with Briscoe and Hart and Watson Monroe. Why don't you take us on? We'll cut you in. And I said to them, I said, what am I going to do with you if you can't even beat the fighters from Philly? <laughs> I, turned, I probably turned down 10% of Hagler. Oh, man. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. We all we all have those, uh, the ones that got away. It's like, uh, That's crazy. It's funny. I, they I saw... came
1: back and forth for me again.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Hagler was not done in Philly. But uh, it's interesting, on the Watts fight, I saw a quote from the commissioner uh, at the time, uh, Howard McCall, where he said, with the uh, Watts-Hagler fight, I may have scored it differently, we may have a problem, and I'm going to solve it. But November 1976, I don't think the commission quite had it solved, um, when uh, Alfredo Escalera came to town to fight uh, Tyrone Everett. Uh, which is, without question, one of the one of the worst robberies I've ever seen. Um, give me your recollections of, of of that fight. And Tyrone had been on a, a ton of your cards uh, leading up to the Escalera fight.
1: Yeah, I mean Tyrone went through the division. We beat guys from the Philippines, Argentina. We brought guys in from the Philippines, Argentina, Korea, Puerto Rico, everywhere. He just knocked off one contender after another. And they were—he so was supposed to fight Escalera in Puerto Rico, but it, uh, for the title. But it was the rainy season, so they moved. Bob Arum had uh, made the deal, uh, and uh, they brought the fight to Philly. And for a month, we argued about the officials. You know, what we did, we we were so naive. Jesus, it was terrible. Um, The Escalera people said, we don't care who the officials are. I said, that's great. Terrific. But what they meant was, we don't care who the officials are because we know the WBC is going to approve them. So um, we went all the way to the governor to try and get this fight straightened out with the officials. So it was finally agreed that one judge would be from Puerto Rico, which we knew was going to vote for Escalera. One judge would be from Philly, which we figured would be an honest judge and would score it right, because we knew knew Everett was going to beat him. And the neutral judge was from Mexico, a guy named Ray Solis. And we had Ray Solis checked out from his toes to his follicles on his head. And everybody told us that Ray Solis was an honest referee, back in the days when referees... Judged. So Howard McCall had not announced who the judge was going to be that night until that night. I remember seeing Tommy Cross, an ex fighter, in that Blue Line restaurant the night of the fight, saying, Boy, I sure hope it's me. But I think by that time I knew it was Lou Tress, who'd been around forever. And uh, as was actually friends with the Gelb family, Frank Gelb's family and Gelb managed Everett. And I remember as I was heading toward the dressing rooms, I saw Lou Tress as he headed down the chute, down the tunnel to go into the arena. I said, Hey Lou. And he just looked at me and looked away. Didn't even say anything. And, um, it was just, uh, it was terrible. It was, it was, when the fight was over, and I've told this before, I was standing at ringside, and the first judge's score, you know, you know who's in my office the day of the fight? Honest Bill Daly. I mean, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> honest Bill Daly, one of the old-time mafia crumbs who, who fixed all those fights in the 50s and 60s. Um, I wasn't even thinking, um, because I knew who the officials were, and I knew we'd get an honest count. So Ed Darian reads the first score. I mean Escalera still hasn't hit Everett. Um, and he read the first score, one forty-five. Escalera one from Lou Tress of Pennsylvania, one forty-five, one forty-three. Escalera and I, I looked at Eddie. I said, Eddie, what's wrong with you? You read it backwards. You know that's what I was thinking. I was thinking he just embarrassed himself by reading the score backwards. And then it just dawned on me what was happening. And then they read the Puerto Rican, but you knew, you know. And uh, the Mexican judge, the referee who we'd had checked out, he voted for Everett, even though his score broke down to four rounds for Everett, two for Escalera, and nine rounds <laughs> Viva. I mean, you know, he wasn't sitting on the fence or anything.
2: But,
1: you know, there was this great photograph that appeared on the cover of a of a news local. Underground newspaper called the Drummer. I always tried to get a copy of it. It was a full-page black and white photo of Everett walking back to the dressing room. You know, he ever Escalera had bit him on the forehead in the thirteenth round, so there was still some kind of patch there or blood. It was, you know, it looked like a just a dejected loser.
2: Mm.
1: Um, mm. Just, it's uh, just outrageous. Just outrageous. You couldn't, and I know what. I know I know that money changed hands. I know what well-known Philadelphia referee was involved in 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 the fixing of the decision. I'm pretty sure I know how much money was paid to Lutres, and um, who had a brother who had a brother who worked at a racetrack in Puerto Rico, you know where Escalera was from. but Lutres had a history. Of, of these kind of decisions and, but I, I you know why would you do it to a Philly guy? We were just naive, just mm. naive, mm.
0: just
2: terrible.
0: Yeah, I think I saw there was a quote from uh, another infamous uh, Philly mobster, it was a Blinky Palermo, who said, "You can buy Lou Tress for a cup of coffee."
1: <laughs> yeah, well, they did, they did, and he never. And I said at the time, as long as I'm promoting at the Spectrum, he'll never judge another fight. And he never did judge another fight. Uh, you
2: know, brutal. He
1: never did. Judge-
2: brutal.
0: Well, but the the Peltz promotions train uh, kept rolling on. Well, unfortunately, yeah, with Everett, I guess we should we should finish uh, Tyrone's story. He was supposed to get a rematch right in Puerto Rico uh, in June of the next year, but he was uh, murdered uh, shortly before that by his his girlfriend. Um.
1: Yeah, it was shot and killed in May of seventy-seven.
0: Right, right, right. That's uh, that's definitely a guy who, uh, who who would have been a world champ. Just just a shame that uh, that things ended up the way they did. But uh, um, let's go on to nineteen seventy-seven. You 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 know slowed down and only promoted nine shows according to to Boxrec. But one of them uh was an absolute classic in in July with um. Matthew Franklin, I believe, at the time, Matthew Saad Muhammad uh, taking on Marvin Johnson. Uh, talk about that fight.
1: I'm I'm privileged to have promoted the greatest fight I ever saw in person, and and I was at Corrales um, Castillo, and I was at Ward Gaddy one, but nothing, you know, I, I shouldn't say nothing touches it. This fight was still the greatest fight I ever saw in person. It was just like nothing but bombs for, I mean, they, the fight would, you know, would the fight have been stopped today? I, I don't know. Um, they took, sh- I mean, Marvin was hitting him with uppercuts. You know, when you get hit with an uppercut, how your head snaps back. And they reach at you know, Marvin must've been out a half a dozen times. And yet going into the 12th round, one judge had it even, one had Marvin ahead, and one had uh, Matthew ahead. And it was just, it was just a classic and if you've ever seen the knockout the way marvin's holding on because marvin was out of gas right holding on to the ropes and going down in slow motion and then the camera shoots through all the hands going up in the air at ringside just like hundreds and hundreds of hands like in the air people cheering and uh it was it was, it was just a classic <clears throat> classic fight, classic i mean uh, for the NABF title and better than the rematch for the world title which was also a great fight in Indianapolis but there was nothing like uh, this fight absolutely
0: absolutely well around this time 1977 um and and again uh you know I mean and, and I remember this around that time too I mean I was pretty young but still I remember 1976 you had the Rocky movie coming out. You had um, the 1976 Olympics where Sugar Ray Leonard was shown in prime time. and became such a star. Ali was still, you know, heavyweight champion of the world. And maybe even though he was past his prime, probably at his, his zenith as a star. Um, this point in time, CBS and NBC got back into the boxing game, right? Um, they had those uh, those anthology shows, you know, the CBS Sports Spectacular and... And NBC Sports World, but uh, unfortunately, around this time too, in '77 was when Don King did his uh, U.S. tournament on 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 ABC, where it was found out that he bribed uh, Ring Magazine to rate fighters who he had signed into the tourney, and and most of the fighters, you know, had to sign with him in order to get in. I think that's one of the reasons Hagler didn't get in because he wouldn't sign with Don. Um, Most people think this was like kind of a turning point in the sport where, uh, you know, like the credibility of Ring Magazine was gone and, and, you know, television kind of turned more to the sanctioning bodies to uh, legitimize fights. What what, what was your sense of that at that time?
1: Well, everybody in boxing knew what was going on, but nobody at uh, ABC seemed to care other than Alex Wallow, who really took the... uh who got credit for what Flash Gordon was writing? Because right. nobody at ABC was reading what Flash Gordon was writing, but Alex was a boxing fanatic, and he started in the mailroom at uh, ABC, and he was the one who kept reminding, telling everybody at ABC what was going on. I mean, it was obvious um, uh, that Ring Magazine was in the bag just on the Hagler thing alone. And uh, actually, Don Elbaum had a better tournament going on independent channels at the same time, but couldn't get the financial backing and went under. Because I remember Marvin Johnson was part of that along with Art and Anthony Fermo and Saad Muhammad and Eddie Gregory and stuff like that. But the whole uh, um, Kings tournament was made up of a bunch of fighters that were managed by his cronies. And some of them made their way into the rankings of uh, Ring Magazine, which was administered at the time by Johnny Ort, which Flash Gordon used to call him Bought, Johnny Bought, (laughs) uh, you know, or Johnny Caught, (laughs) C-A-U-G-H-T. And it finally fell apart, but it didn't seem to stop stop King's uh, momentum on TV. We did a show with King in 77, on ABC, which was the second fight between Roberto Duran and uh, Edwin Veroet at the Spectrum uh, for the world title. And for the great semifinal, Matthew Franklin against Dynamite Douglas, where Franklin had to get off the floor to win by knockout and controversial. And in those days, you weren't really allowed to advertise on the canvas, so wherever King went... He would have he would send this big blue canvas with his logo in the center. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have the Spectrum logo get in the center. So the week of the fight, King King, <laughs> King sent the uh, canvas to Philly. And I told the people at the Spectrum what I wanted to do. So we decided to have the canvas sent to JFK Stadium, which was next door at the time. It's now the Wells Fargo Center and have somebody scribble a signature on there that they received it. I remember sitting in my office with Rich Giacchetti the day before the fight, and he's going, where's that canvas? Where's that? Geez, I don't know, Rich. And, well, here's the signature. Where is this from? So they could never find the King canvas, and they wound up putting the uh, Spectrum canvas, (laughs) and we got it on national television. (laughs) And when the fight was over, and that was a fight that almost didn't happen because BiroWet may have been overweight, and ABC wanted to pull out the day of the fight. But anyway, when the fight was over and I went into the president's office and King was sitting there, he said, Peltz, I know you hid that canvas. <laughs> I know you hid it somewhere. I said, Don, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so we got some publicity out of that. But uh, I remember going to a meeting the morning of the fight with Howard Cosell and Chet Forty and Alex Wallow, and they wanted to cancel the telecast because they thought that Al Braverman had pulled a quick one by getting Virouette on and off the scale really quick. You know, know, it's amazing that maybe that was a... um, Maybe that came because of the trouble they had with the King tournament. Maybe they were just fidgeting, because normally that stuff wouldn't bother TV people, but... We convinced him to go through with the fight anyway.
0: So. <laughs> That's wild. That is wild. So going into uh, to 78 now, um, I mean, there's a million and one fights I, c- I could talk to you about here. But, it, you know, Hagler, Briscoe, um, obviously it was kind of Marvin's, uh, you know, Marvin had come back and, and actually beaten Monroe. And, and uh, oh, yeah, and he beat Cyclone Hart. Hart. So he was now two and two against Philly middleweights, and this was kind of the uh, the uh, the tiebreaker. He fought Briscoe. Um, Both guys were rated in the top ten of the BA, the BC. Huge fight, I believe. Uh, I've read that it's the that it drew nearly fifteen thousand, which is uh, which was the largest indoor crowd for a non non world title fight at the time
1: in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Still, still. Still, okay, okay. Still the largest crowd, yeah. The, Hagler won that fight. fight which, yeah, it was not a great fight. Uh, Briscoe was coming off a big win in Kansas City over Tony Schiaparini, but, you know, let's see, 1978, so Briscoe was a Briscoe of 43. He was, he was an old 35. 35 was old then for fighters. Right. And, you know. He had at that time probably 80 fights, and uh, he cut Hagler early, and, and of course Hagler wasn't going to stand there and trade with Briscoe, and he just outboxed him, and he won a 10-round decision, and uh, but Briscoe didn't get hurt, and uh, it was an okay fight, nothing special, um, but 78 was like the best year ever at the Spectrum, right? with the fights we made, like Saad Muhammad and Richie Cates, and... Which was, it,
0: I encourage anybody to go onto YouTube and check that one out. Amazing, amazing yeah. fight. I mean, Saad Muhammad was in just so many great fights, but that one in particular is just just back and forth. Crazy, crazy fight.
2: Yeah,
1: that was, that was a very good year. Uh, we finished up with Mike Rossman and Aldo Travisera for the WBA Light Heavyweight title. Right. It was just a, a good year. for, And it was the only East Coast, and I really take pride in this, It was the only East Coast fight for schoolboy Bobby Chacon, the only time he came East. He fought for me in September and put on one of those best performances by a visiting fighter Mm. when he beat Orki Pantelis at the Spectrum, but... It was nice to have done that, to, to have Bobby Chacon fight for me.
0: Now, Pantelis is an interesting story. I mean, you know, and I don't know it, so maybe I'm you know, i just naive. but he was kind of a, a big draw early on when you we were promoting in the early 70s. Then there's the six-year layoff. I mean, was he – Was he? Uh, did he just take the time off? Was he in the pokey? What happened to Augie Pantelis for six years?
1: No, it wasn't in the pokey, but he got hooked on drugs. Ah, and, this was uh, the 70s yeah, after all. Nice. Yeah, okay. Um, let's see, was it 72, 71 or 72, whatever he lost to, I think Miguel Herrera, um, he laid off and then he came back in 77, 77. Yeah. yeah, and he was hooked on drugs and then he found God and, uh, then he came back and he was the same big attraction, um, but he'd had a, uh. We thought, we, I thought Bobby Chacon was gone. Mm. We'd seen him, uh, if you look at Chacon's record at that time, he had struggled, he had lost to a couple times, and I think even when he beat Olivares, it was nothing special, but who knew that Chacon was going to like, this was even before the Boza, Edwards, and Bazooka Lamone fights. Right. And, uh, but he looked like he was all gone, and then we helped revive him, and, uh, <laughs> But it was like one of those perfect nights. Mm. And I remember hanging out with him afterward with the late Jack Obermeyer. And uh, he was such a nice kid. Um, such a beautiful fighter. I can't believe that I've read lately that some people question his Hall of Fame credentials. I can't believe people say that. Mm. I mean, of course he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, it's not even a question. But um, So that was a big night, the... It was a good year. It was a very good year. We had his, Pantelis' fights earlier that year with Isaac Vega and Roman Contreras and uh, Saad Muhammad's fights, the Briscoe Hackler fight. It was a good year. That was the most profitable year uh, of Spectrum Boxing. And it was also the end, really, the beginning of the end of Spectrum Boxing when casinos came in. Uh, we mm. opened that summer in Atlantic City, and we had a monstrous drop off in nineteen seventy nine
0: yeah i see that you went you promoted ten shows in seventy eight you, you did promote uh nine shows in in seventy nine but uh yeah you know especially considering you know how how big seventy eight was for you now something that was that, that's listed, they, they say that your first world champion was Marvin Johnson, so did you sign Marvin, like, it seemed like you kind of, you, you, you did these, you, you did contracts more like on a, or if you did contracts, I mean, you, you kind of work with these guys on a fight by fight basis, did you have Marvin under contract?
1: No, my brother-in-law was his manager, and that's okay. how you had to do it in those days, you had to, um, you had to have somebody in control that you could trust right and uh... because i didn't know about promotional contracts back then and because promoters were promoters back then today promoters are managers mm. there are no managers anymore and right. anybody that thinks there are is fooling themselves the promoter makes the decision i'm not you know i don't want to say that the managers are rubber stamps but they're rubber stamps i mean come on you know you, you think you think the, Top rank doesn't basically manage everybody or golden boy doesn't manage everybody. I mean, I'm not, they don't take the money. It's not illegal what they're doing or what I do when I have a fighter under promotional contract. Well, once you sign with a promoter, the promoter really you know, runs stuff by you, but it's not like back then where managers could like shop their fighters around to the best deal. Right. And maneuver them from one promoter to another. You're basically stuck today. Not stuck. And listen, they, everybody does a good job. But, um, so, but back then, promoters made their money by promoting the best fight that would sell the most tickets. It didn't matter whether I had control of Willie the Worm or Tyrone Everett or Sammy Goss. That's, these are the fights you wanted to make. And you made them. You couldn't use your own fighters if nobody wanted to see them because you couldn't make money. Today, you, you get close with a TV executive, and if he likes you, he'll put on any slop that you, that you want to give him. Right. So, And I always say that we don't see the best fighters on television today. We see the fighters with the best records, because everybody's so statistics-oriented. But remember, during these years at the Spectrum, we had gone back to the blue horizon and started developing talent there. So when you say... We only did seven fights in a year. Yeah, we only did seven fights at the Spectrum, but we were trying to develop talent at the Blue Horizon also.
0: Right, you were you you split your you split your shows right from okay. uh, in in the later seventies, and then and then started uh, promoting at the casinos as well. Um,
1: yeah, the eighties were the casinos. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Well, I guess closing out. 79, you know, Briscoe loses to, to David Love, who went on a little streak of, of beating uh, Philly middleweights. Um, and, and Saad Muhammad, uh in in Indianapolis. Now, you didn't promote the the fight with Marvin John, the rematch with Johnson and, and Saad Muhammad, right?
1: Yeah, I did. I was co-promoter with Aram and Fred Burns.
0: Fred Burns, right. Okay, okay. So, yeah, they don't have that right on box, right? But, uh, yeah. So so, Sod wins that, but then Johnson comes back later in the year in New Orleans and and beats uh, Victor Galendez. So you were back in the saddle.
1: Yeah, that was terrific. Um, that was a great win for Marvin. I remember sitting next to Monzon at ringside because you know he was there to support Galendez, and uh, it was just a big win for Marvin. But he couldn't hold on to the title because. We were gonna get him an, an easy fight against a guy named Mustafa Lazaja from Norway and he didn't want that. He wanted to fight Saad Muhammad again. Oh no, 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 no. He wanted to fight Eddie he wanted to fight Eddie Mustafa. Right. And Eddie Mustafa wouldn't fight him.
2: Hmm.
1: I, I forget what well, I must have been over money. And Marvin picked up the phone and called Eddie Mustafa because in, in, in the amateurs they had room together. And he convinced Eddie Mustafa fight him that's the kind of guy marvin was wow imagine fighter today doing that <laughs> up, i said why won't you fight me Jesus, that's the way that's the difference between then and now and eddie and eddie oh boy did eddie fight a beautiful fight Ooh. yeah that was brutal that was
0: brutal what he did to to marvin I mean, he he just completely gave him a beating that night in in knoxville in uh, in 1980 that's crazy now uh It's funny because Johnson won the title and and then lost it to Mustafa Muhammad. But a few years earlier, Mustafa Muhammad had gone into Rahway prison and and lost to James Scott there. Um, Was there ever any consideration of, of Marvin taking on Scott?
1: Uh, no, no, not at all. Because. I think Scott was
0: out of the ratings at that point. I think the WBA had had didn't have him in the ratings anymore. But he had been like number Who? one for Scott? James, James Scott. Yeah,
2: Who?
0: James Scott. No, that
1: was Scott's first fight. That was his first fight in prison.
0: No, no. I mean, when by the time Marvin Johnson won the WBA title, I think James Scott oh. had been had been the WBA no, had decided also, against him.
1: But I see. I also had Jerry the Bull Martin. He was
0: my fighter. Right. I was going to get to that. Yeah. So so 1980. Yeah. You you took uh, Jerry the Bull Martin into Rahway, and Scott was unbeaten at the time and had beaten like you know half of the top ten basically, um, and uh, that that was that was quite a fight. I mean, Jerry Martin was like a man possessed in the first couple of rounds of that fight. That was unbelievable. I mean, he he like beat Scott at his own game and dropped him twice. So, yeah, that, was, that was a great fight. But talk about the experience
1: in Rahway. That well, was on Memorial Day weekend. Imagine spending Memorial Day weekend inside Raway State Prison. Every <laughs> time you'd walk through a door and, and they'd shut, slam that thing shut, you know, you'd know, you say, boy, I hope I'm getting out of here. And you'd look <laughs> across and see the inmates on the other side. I mean, that was no... Uh, what was that show they used to have on Showtime years ago where Chuck Zito was in prison? I forget the name of it. It was my favorite prison series. I
2: uh-huh. don't know.
1: That's what it was like. That was hardcore. We went into the drill hall and they had a prison band playing that was high up in, like, the balcony, an enclosed balcony. And I'm telling you, Kurt, they were as good as any band you ever heard. Mm. They were playing before the show started. I, I can't remember if there were preliminary fights on that card or not, but, uh, boy, did he give, uh, he gives, he gave Scott a a beating and, um, we went out to eat afterward with all his friends from Antigua and they, one by one, they all got up at the table and spoke eloquently about, you know, what wonderful things we had done for Jerry Mm. Uh, Because that's where he was from, Antigua. And it was just, uh, I thought Jerry was unbeatable at the time. I really did. Um, I thought he would do the same thing to Eddie Mustafa when we fought him later that year for the title at uh, the Playboy Club. But, you know, I always underrated Eddie as a fighter. Jerry just, when Jerry didn't jump on Eddie in the first minute like he jumped on Scott, when he went out there pawing, and and thinking and trying to jab, I said, "Oh boy, we got a problem here." Because Eddie was like a surgeon, like he was with Marvin, right. he was with Jerry, and Jerry was never in the fight. That was a real disappointment to me. Not that he lost, but the way he lost, right? You know, not the, being aggressive like he was with Scott.
0: Yeah, Martin just kind of came around at the wrong time. He uh, he ran into three buzzsaws as champion. You know, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad picked him apart. He had a great fight with Saad Muhammad, where he got out to got out to a big lead, but then as as Saad used to do, he came came back and uh, and managed to stop him. And then uh, you know Dwight Muhammad Kawi was was just a, a little tank man, very tough to beat. Right. Um, but uh, another graduate of of Raway, um, who was. Probably my all-time favorite fighter who, who you worked with, uh, Frank the Animal Fletcher, also uh, kind of came of age in the early 80s um, and, and went on a roll. And i got to say, the, the first six rounds of his fight with uh, Clint Jackson are, were about as good as it gets. That, that, that's about as exciting action as you're ever going to see in a fight. Uh, talk about working with Frank.
1: Well, we when Aaron took the ESPN deal in 1980 and he set up that tournament, Mel Greba had the Vegas, Ernie Terrell had Chicago, Dan Duva had Totala, New Jersey, and I had Atlantic City. And we would alternate. And he started the tournament, and when we entered Frankie in the middleweight tournament, Aaron said, wait a second, he's only four and two. You know, what are you doing? I said, don't worry about it, Bob. He'll be fine. And uh, his coming out party was in the semifinals when he knocked out Caveman Lee. Um who eventually fought Hagler for the title, and then uh, and he, and Ferdy Pacheco, well, that was the, that, that's... See, in 1980, when this was going on, Ferdy Pacheco was hired by NBC to buy their fights, and this broke the stranglehold that Aram and King had on network television. Until then, only King and Aram could get on network television. Right. And Ferdy got the gig at NBC... And he gave breaks to me, Dan Duva, Phil Alessi, and Murad Muhammad. And one of his first shows, he, wanted, he called me and he wanted to use uh, Fletcher, um, who now had gotten ranked because by winning the ESPN tournament, you've got a, the winner of each weight class would get a shot against the top ten guys. And, our, and we put, and I made Frankie with, Lamb and Sammy Naismith of Indianapolis. Uh, It was the Aram show, but I made the fight, and Frankie knocked him out and got ranked, and then Ferdy bought Frankie against Norberto Sabater for the vacant USBA title the following June of 81 at the Sands, and Frankie turned the Sands into his personal boudoir, (laughs) and ran up a string of wins, one... One, which is a closet classic that you never see because it was only televised by Prism, which was the forerunner of Sports Channel in Philly, which was his brutal fight with Ernie Singletary, which I consider to be as brutal as Johnson and Saad Muhammad, but Mm. nobody sees it because I think I'm the only person that has the video of it.
0: I was going to say, I've never seen
1: that one. No, they were both taken to the hospital that night. In fact, we had to break into Frankie's hotel room to wake him up, Ugh. And uh, the the medic said if we hadn't he'd be dead. Oof! Wow! Wow! And, wow! Uh, and then he followed that up with, jeez, uh, Tony Braxton, Clint Jackson, Hard Rock Green, right? And he was he was the darling of NBC television.
0: I love those fights. I I could still hear the chant, Animal, Animal. Yeah. I saw you, you know, we, I saw you, last I saw you uh, was at the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Boxing Hall of Fame Awards, and uh, he got inducted this past year, and I, I went out. I actually went out because my man, Mike Aikery was also getting inducted, but um, I got to meet uh, Lucille, finally. I got to meet Frank's mom. That was, that was like a thrill for me, but, uh, but yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, I partnered with Johnny Boz on a couple of fighters here in New York. And I know that you and you and Boz work together and Boz, Boz claims that he's the one who made the fight. And I'll never forgive him. May he rest in peace. But uh, for making that Wilfred Scipion fight, while, uh while Frank was the number one contender. So at that point in time, I mean, he, he was the number one contender, I would assume he would have got his shot at, at Hagler. So I mean, was Scipion just supposed to be a stay-busy fight, or or did Frank want that fight, or how did that one come about?
1: Well, no, I don't remember Boz. Now, if Boz made the fight, he made it. He didn't make it with me. He might have put it in Mike Jones' ear, because the weekend uh, after Frankie stopped Frank uh, James Green, um, I had Jeff Chandler fighting Atlantic City, and Mike Jones called, either Mike Jones or Sam Glass, I can't remember, called me on the phone and wanted to make Frankie with Sipion. And uh, I said, fine, you know. Uh, my biggest mistake in those days was not getting options because I just didn't believe in that. But, you know, I should have gotten options on Sipion so it would have been involved because he was nowhere at the time. Frankie was a loose cannon, and we weren't going to get a shot at, uh, I mean, this is my, my pathetic excuse. We weren't <laughs> going to get a shot at Hagler for like six months. And Frankie was making good money. He made like 150000 to fight Sipion. Mm. That's a lot of money in
2: 1983.
0: 83, yeah. Uh,
1: he was making more money than Jeff Chandler was for a while.
2: Mm.
1: And, mm. Uh, and we figured, you know, we didn't think, I wasn't thinking, Frankie had been beating junior middleweights. Hard Rock Green, Clint Jackson, Tony Braxton. They were all junior middleweight. Now he's going up against a guy who not only was a middleweight, but probably had the finest training camp of his career. And, uh, you know, Frankie was always in trouble on the streets. And that's how I rationalized it. But it was stupid because, yeah, we had the Hagler fight. And uh, we fought Scipion And, and well, 12 rounds, what he lose? Nine out of 12, something like that.
0: Yeah, it was a really yeah. ugly fight. I I was like stand up screaming at the TV, screaming at the ref to penalize Scipion, because Sypion would, would, would do like like Ali did against Frazier in the second fight. He'd throw a combination and then just grab. It was just like yeah. punch and grab. Punch and grab. It was a ugly, ugly, ugly fight. But uh, my man got knocked off. But you mentioned Jeff Chandler. Jeff Chandler, probably one of the the, the best lower weight fighters you know of that era. Um, WBA champ for, for many years. I mean, he won it in, in 1980 and, uh, believe he held it till 84, um, you know, made a bunch of defenses. Um, my question was always, you know, loopy Pintor was also champion at that point in time, BC, both guys, probably two of the best Bantamweights of uh, my lifetime. Um, was there ever any efforts to, to put those two together and, and
1: try and make a unification? I don't think I really tried that hard because um, Pintor and then at one point Alberto Davila, um, there wasn't, you know, both guys were making good money fighting on um, national television and to be able to pay them, I don't think the networks, I don't recall the networks being interested in making it lucrative enough for them to fight each other. In retrospect, I, I... I think it was a mistake on my part because Jeff certainly would have fought him at the Olympics in L.A. Jeff was that kind of guy. He didn't care. You know, he went to Tokyo twice and won the title from a Puerto Rican in Miami. Right. That never bothered him, but um, it would have been good for boxing to have unified the title. Um, I guess if I'd worked harder at it, we could have figured out a way to do it, but there was, you know, it's just money to be made and, no one was offering like a TV was paying us like two hundred thousand a fight. They weren't going to pay us five hundred thousand for the unification, right? And of course, you know, you had you had to deal with King at some times because you know, and, and you know, King wanted everything. He wanted you know your firstborn son <laughs> won the fight. And, you know, I was always leery of dealing with Don because I just didn't think that I could that I could successfully
2: deal with them. Mm. Mm.
0: Well, it's interesting because so, uh, cause maybe, I mean, I guess maybe more towards the mid-80s, but this is the point when HBO um, started throwing a lot of money around at fights, but I guess they, they weren't really interested in lower weight fighters for the most part, right? They they were more uh, dealing with the heavyweights and and some of the, the middleweight guys, like, you know, well, obviously Sugar Ray Leonard. Um but uh, it's interesting because they
1: did, do, uh, they did do Pintor and, Wilf- and uh, Wilfredo and Gomez uh, underneath, right uh, underneath Benitez and Hearns, which was a King show. Right. I can't remember the year, but I have a feeling Jeff, I don't know if Jeff had the, I think Jeff would have had the title still. I can't remember.
0: I think it was 83. I might be mistaken, but it's yeah, either 82 or 83.
1: The King tried to steal him from me, Jeff. Hmm. Uh, at the Snipes uh, Holmes fight. but uh, Jeff was loyal. And his management was loyal, so that wasn't gonna happen.
0: Right, right. Now it's interesting when, when, when HBO did kind of come in um and and start buying the bigger fights from the network, well basically outbidding the the um the networks for these fights and uh, I, I was talking to Kathy Duva about it and she also said that the fact that ESPN was 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 reaching more people now, they were also kind of buying because they were a 24-hour network, they were buying up like a lot of these, you know, crazy sports that these network anthology shows like Sports Spectacular and and Sports World had had kind of uh gotten. So it kind of made boxing like by the mid eighties it was like very two-tier, right? I mean, you had like the big fights were kind of heading to HBO. And then all you had was like ESPN, and I guess USA Network, the Tuesday night fights. Although you know you were coming from an era where there really you know I mean television money didn't figure into things when when you first started promoting, right? But um,
1: talk oh, about at the beginning, no.
0: yeah. Talk about how the dynamic kind of changed in the '80s with HBO and ESPN and, and USA Network coming in.
1: Well, Arm had control of ESPN, so nobody. Arm had control of ESPN from like nineteen eighty until nineteen ninety eight. Right. So nobody was uh, doing anything. Um, HBO was in the. I uh, can't remember much about HBO. USA Network, um, for me, was the key. Right. Um, you know, in in in. Uh, In June of 86, Dan Duva had a deal with uh, USA Network um, to do monthly shows on a tape-delay basis. And Dan was moving up the ladder and uh, called me one day in May of 86 and said he had a date in June that he just didn't have time for, but I'd take it off his hands and do a show at the Blue Horizon. It was a $2,000 rights fee for tape-delay. So I made... um, i made Johnny Carter against Juan Belos, um, and suddenly the Blue Horizon was on national television, <laughs> and people who'd never been there, I mean, they had had a couple back in the early 60s, but um, people who'd never been there and only heard about it now saw it. And then Dan gave me another one a month later for which there was three thousand dollar rights fee, but he kept a thousand this time. I think I did three tape delay shows that year. One that they showed on New Year's Eve, which I happened to watch that <laughs> night when I was somewhere. And in nineteen eighty seven I had my own contract with USA Network for live fights. And I kept that deal from nineteen eighty seven until the end in nineteen ninety eight and people who never had seen the Blue Horizon, especially those in Philly, started coming, and we started selling out every show. And I still say, and I said this to someone the other day, that, and I hate to use the first nail in the coffin for boxing because people are saying how big boxing is now, but the demise of USA Network uh, when they got out of the boxing business, to me, was the beginning was a major downturn in boxing popularity because USA network was independent. They came from all over the country and they worked with many different promoters. And, uh, I really think that was a big negative in boxing when they stopped.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Cause, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I, definitely, when I, when I think of Pelts promotions from, you know, like the, the mid eighties, uh, you know, through, through to, to, the late 90s yeah i think of the two things the blue horizon and and uh tuesday night fights and you know i think you you did like the only uh, world title fight ever at the blue right you did uh charles uh charles brewer and joey de grandis right
1: right december of 97
0: right right it's interesting but i mean at a certain point it seems like you know mainstream newspapers stopped covering the sport right and and I'm trying to think of like, you know, at, at what point that was. I mean, do you think also the fact that HBO had kind of pushed boxing onto premium cable and off of uh network TV had a lot to do with it? Or um what what what's your take on that? And you you're saying like late nineties pretty much was when when boxing started to to slide into a niche sport?
1: Well, Alex Wallow predicted that. Once it left the networks and it went to the pay stations and pay-per-view, that it would hurt boxing. And he was certainly right. I think the other thing that hurts boxing even more than that, and I've said this many times, is the demise of newspapers, because if you were a, let's say in Philly, if you're an Eagles fan, or a 76ers fan or a Phillies fan, and you want to read about the Phillies back then, You'd buy the newspaper and you'd read it, and as you were turning the pages, there'd be a boxing story because there were always boxing stories. So you'd read about it. Now, if you're an Eagles fan, you go to the football websites, or if you're a Sixers fan, you go to the basketball websites. So the only people going to the boxing websites are the die-hard fanatics. Right. So you lose the crossover, and you lose. And that to me is a is a, is a monster reason. Right the demise of boxing more bigger than people realize
0: but even before that, I think like the mainstream papers stopped you know having a writer for you like a boxing writer right i mean they they stopped having that um and I remember the sporting news, which was a a sports publication that you know I loved, they literally stopped covering boxing at some point in time, and I think it was the nineties i mean maybe it was. You know the the sanctioning bodies and the corruption and I don't know Mike Tyson. You know having the whole rape case and all that didn't help either. Um, but uh, at a certain point, it just seemed like you know mainstream papers just decided that boxing wasn't worth covering anymore. And uh, and uh, I don't know. I think it was you know probably all all of that was going on around that time of the, in the nineties, sometime like maybe late nineties. Because uh,
1: well, I haven't checked it out, but people have told me that the shenanigans that went on in Tokyo after Tyson, after King tried to get the reversal that Buster Douglas was down for 10 seconds, that that turned off a lot of sponsors and advertisers
2: mm. because
1: it was public and everybody read about what King was trying to do. You take this monster upset, one of the biggest upsets in the history of sports, and he's trying to reverse it publicly. And I think that turned off a lot of sponsors.
0: Right, absolutely. absolutely. television. Right, you know, combine that with the fact that it's on premium cable, and yeah, just just a lot of factors. Um, So it's funny, but around the time, or maybe like a year or two after Tuesday Night Fights conked out, ESPN decided to remake Friday Night Fights and open it up, right? Top Rank uh, no longer had the stranglehold on it. And uh, you were serving as, like, a consultant or matchmaker to ESPN around at the time. Is that right?
1: It wasn't two years. It was actually August of 98 was the last USA show. And the first of the Friday night fights was October of that year at the Blue Horizon. Oh, okay. I, I, was, the, uh, I was the guy buying the fights. And I was still able to do my own fights, which, of course, brought out the, uh, the critics saying how infarcial. You know, when I got that job at ESPN, <clears throat> I actually thought that all my years of making good fights had finally paid off. And now I was going to be the guy that could make good competitive fights at a network. And I was—I—I I, I thought I was like on top of the world. And uh, so I've been independent for so long, I forgot what working with a big corporate mindset was all about. And I remember Bill Caton who would help make the deal for me, who we later wound up in court with over fight films. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, He said, is a one-year contract good enough? I said, yeah, Bill, because we'll knock their socks off after a year and they'll want to do more, which was a mistake. But four or five months into the job, the people who had hired me at ESPN, most of them had moved on to ABC or higher echelons in the business, leaving me at the mercy of, of the old boys club at ESPN. And five or six months into the job, I lost the ability to make the fights and I became nothing more than an errand boy for the next, I don't know, three or however long I lasted there, 98 to maybe 2004, I can't remember. I stayed there because I needed to. That's some kind of entree because business was bad, but it's probably, it went from being like one of the shining moments of my career to probably the most disappointing part of my career that I ever encountered. Um, having to, I remember, I won't name him, but one of the announcers, and it wasn't Teddy, said to me, he said, they're afraid of you. He said, because you know more than they do, and that scares them. So it's never going to change. If it hadn't been for Teddy Atlas though, I probably would have been out of there years earlier. But he kept standing up for me and keeping me in there. Not that it was any kind of great job, but you know, I didn't want I didn't want appearance fights. I wanted fights in arenas, not in casinos. I said, if We're paying sixty grand, let's give a promoter sixty five for an arena and sixty for a casino, because we needed to be in the small arenas. And show what boxing was like across the country, not just in casinos with the big names, but even even competitive club shows where Steubenville, Ohio, or 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 the or the casino ballroom at Hampton Beach, or we should always have a fight at the Hall of Fame every year, and and, and we, instead we were going, and I, I said I don't want to do the IBA and the IBO and this bullshit, these organizations and but once I got pushed out of there, that's what we were back to. Mm. And uh, it was a very disappointing time, mm. uh, those years at ESPN. Very disappointing.
2: Mm.
0: Well, I mean, you've, you've persevered through all that. And, and in 2004, you, you managed to, to get another champion in Kasima Uma, right? You were working with Uma when, uh, when he won the world title. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And since then, you know, you've had, uh, you know, you had Kasim, you've had Jason Sosa as a world champ. Tell you, though, the one the one guy you had who I really thought was going to be special and uh, unfortunately came up short, um, who just looked like a super blue chip uh, potential superstar guy was Mike Jones. Um, Mike pretty much out of
1: boxing at this point in time. Somebody tells me he's actually back in town looking to fight again, but it, but it's over. I mean, right? As he got as the fights got bigger, he got more timid. Mm. I and mean, there's no way he should have lost to Randall Bailey. Actually, he should have stopped Bailey, but he didn't want to take chances. And then he wound up getting hit. It was an interesting story. He's fighting. He's fighting for the title, and he's so far ahead after nine rounds that the only way he can lose is by a knockout. Okay, he gets dropped in the tenth. No big deal. He gets up, and then he gets knocked out in the eleventh. Okay, this is 2012 June. Six years later, in 2008, and no, I'm sorry. Four years later, 2016 June, I'm in Beijing with Jason Sosa, who is so far behind after nine rounds. The only way he can win is by knockout. So what does he do? He drops Javier Fortuna in the 10th and knocks him out in the 11th. The exact opposite of Mike Jones. And I have to tell you that when that happened at that time in my life, at my age, that's one of the, to win the title, to be involved with a fighter, to win the title like that, at that stage in my career, is certainly right up there as one of the highlights. I remember going back to the hotel that night, and Sosa's people went upstairs to call home, and my wife went upstairs to sleep, and I went to a bar in the hotel that night, one of these really fancy bars with hardly any lights, and what was on was neon, and I was all by myself at the bar drinking a beer. I felt like I was, you know, people back in the United States were just waking up to the fact of what had happened, and, because nobody thought Sosa was going on. I don't want to hear it if they thought he had a chance. And, uh, it was just such a wonderful feeling of accomplishment. You know, you, you wish you could do that every time out.
0: Right. Right. No, that's special. There's no, there's no feeling like, you know, watching your guy, like you said, win a, win a championship on the road. I've, I've had that happen a couple of times and it's unbelievable. Just one of the best nights of your life. But, uh. So, Russell, almost fifty years in the business, um, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to an interview with uh, Michelle Rosado the other day, and and she said that one of the things she admired about you was that you 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 never aspired. You told her that you never aspired to take over the sport. Um, you know that that you were happy doing what you were doing. Um, so I guess you know, with 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 nearly fifty years of of wisdom and experience in the sport. Um, what are the what are the types of things that you're teaching Michelle and uh, you know what, what what did she what did she get right to get that that sellout for Philly special?
1: She works twenty four seven. There's nobody better than her at marketing a fight. There's nobody better. I've been around you know at 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 this level. Not that she won't can't make it to that, the next level, but she wants to build her own brand. She doesn't want to work for top rank. She doesn't want to work for Golden Boy. She doesn't want to work for Matchroom. she wants to work for Raging babe and um, it's 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 just incredible. If I send her she says I need a picture of uh, Sonny Conto and she said, no, that's not a good enough quality picture. We'll do a photo shoot and she'll do that. She'll go out and spend the money for for graphics or the, you know she just she won't tolerate anything that's not um, up to her standards. And uh, as long as you keep making good fights, I just tell her, just make good fights. There's nothing that can cure boxing quicker than good fights. And she gets the word out there, and she's she's a, she's a workhorse. She won't be denied. She works into the nights. So I ask her, you want to go out to dinner now? I got too much work. I've never seen anything like it, but you know, it worked for her in Philly. Absolutely, it works for her in Arizona. She was successful in North Carolina. Um, you know, it's great to see her enthusiasm.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, on that note, work hard, make good fights. I guess that those are those are words to live by. Uh, Russell, really appreciate you taking the time out uh, on a Saturday and, and, and talking to me. And uh, good luck with everything. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, if you guys are having a celebration for your 50th uh, anniversary, I definitely want to want to be there to help, help you celebrate, man. I'll let you know. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Take care, Russell. Talk take to you here. Bye. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring. I'd like to thank Russell Peltz for taking the time out to speak with me. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. And last but not least, certainly leave a comment on The Ring uh, website where uh, you can find this podcast now. I really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And until next time, so long, everybody.